0: As they're leaving, <clears throat> sometimes it's a, a toddler. We had to, to take a poll. I, I, I'm, I'm curious here. Toddler's favorite word. All right. You want to guess first? Is that what you want to do? Okay, we can guess. All right, go ahead. What is it? Woohoo! yeah. Man, you got it. I was really thinking it was going to be a mix between mine and no. Both are good options. But yes, I think that one of a a toddler's at least top five words is mine. Because they're prone to having a, a singular focus on their toys, right? Their needs, their timing. When do I want it? I want it now. And usually around kindergarten or so, parents and teachers band together to remove or at least tamp down that selfish impulse. That's when they learn that the world doesn't revolve around their desires. And they learn the importance of sharing. They learn the value of waiting patiently, even if that's a lesson we need to learn again and again. But as children develop into contributing members of society, it's crucial that they grow out of the mine mentality. And they start to notice the needs of others. They start to care about the betterment of the world in which they live. But as we look at the world around us, and really as we consider our own hearts, maybe we would all do well to go back to kindergarten. Because the mind mentality runs rampant in our hearts and in our world. And that's apparent in our gospel lesson. And today, as we explore the danger of the mind mentality, I want to... I especially want you to hear this message of loving generosity that the Lord has shown to you. Because today in our text, we hear about the God who warns us to avoid greed and covetousness. Is the same God who, just in the next verses, tells us that there's no need for us to worry because he promises to provide for us. Now, when we look at this text, when we look at the parable of the rich fool... It's pretty clear that he suffered from the mine mentality. I mean, just look at, listen to the way he talks. He says, it's my crops and my barns, my grains, my goods, my surplus, my life. This is the essence of modern culture, right? Our culture strongly emphasizes self-determinism. No one can tell me what to do with my things. No one can tell me what to do with my body. No one can tell me what to do with my life. And to be fair, there's actually some, some value in that. I mean, when we're talking about mere mortals, there's some value in that thought. As Americans, our nation was partly founded on the idea of individual freedom, right? That the, the government should be limited in what they say can and cannot be done. And thankfully, we don't and prayerfully won't have a government that restricts our freedom to worship or our ability to work. But the problem is that we tend to try to take this concept of individual freedom, and it's a good thing when we apply it to humans, but we as humans try to apply this to God. We try to tell the Lord and say, this is my life, and you can't tell me what to do with it. We see, according to the scriptures, that idea that no one can tell me what to do with, and you can fill in the blank with whatever you would like, that that is a wrong-headed idea. Because all we are and all we have is given to us by the Heavenly Father. He created us mind, body, and soul. Our being is from Him. Our, our possessions are from Him. Our abilities are from Him. He has every right to tell us what to do with them. And yet the the rich fool in the parable thinks nothing of God and only of himself. The Lord had provided him with an abundant harvest, right? So much that there was not enough room to store it. Now, if you're hearing that parable, you hear that line, there's not enough room to store it. So much blessing. There's not enough room to store it. Man, if you have your Old Testament ears on, you might be hearing Malachi chapter 3, where the Lord makes this promise to his people that as they bring in the full tithe and he says, test me in this and see if I won't throw open the floodgates, the, the floodgates of heaven and overwhelm you to the point you have so much blessing that you don't know what to do with it all. and You ha- don't have enough room to store it. That's Malachi 3. And so here we have this man in this parable who has received so much he doesn't know what to do with it. But this is where the parable takes a dark turn, because rather than thanking the Lord for his blessing, rather than using it to provide for the poor or to improve the world in which he lived, instead of being a wise steward at all, he chose to hoard it. He chose selfishness. And, and then Jesus, as, as he's telling this tale, he, he really puts this man's foolishness on display because he has this guy, quote, Isaiah 22, verse 13. Uh, and he, he only says the first half of it, though. He says that it's a good thing, right? I have all these great things, so I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry, period. But that's not how the text goes. And any one of those listeners who is listening to this parable, they would have known like that's not how that story ends. That's not how that verse ends. It's Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's exactly what happens to the man. It was that very later that night, even, that man's life was demanded from him, and he didn't get to enjoy any of what he had prepared for himself. Now, we could take this parable, we could take this story, and we could focus on financial giving and the importance of tithing, and that's certainly part of what Jesus is addressing here. But I think that that is a mere symptom of a deeper problem. I think the problem is not just about money. I think it's primarily about idolatry. This man was a fool, right? He was a fool because he trusted in the gifts that God gave to him instead of trusting in the God who gave those gifts. His wealth was not the problem. There's nothing wrong with having Wealth. That's a a good good thing. God gives wealth. That's great. Uh, Instead, it was the worship of his wealth. That was the problem. It was that he believed the wealth was his and his alone to be used solely for his own enjoyment. That was the problem. It was his mine mentality that led him to lay up treasure for himself, but not to be rich toward God. And this mine mentality is not hard to spot in our world today or in our own lives. Now, Luther, he believed that the most common idol for a man's heart was money, right? Um, And I actually would say, I don't think that's exactly true. I would say it goes a little bit further than that. Because I think Scripture is very clear that the very most, the most common false god, the most common idol for a man's heart is himself. Think back to the Garden of Eden. That was the driving force for eating the fruit in the garden. I can be like God. That was the core issue for Cain's murder of Abel. That was what led the Pharisees and the Sadducees to condemn the teachings of Jesus. It was about their pride. It was about their power, their control. It was about themselves. In in each case, the characters displaced God... And put themselves in his place. And that is a textbook definition for idolatry, even though it's not typically what we think of. Sometimes when we think of idolatry, especially if we're uh, thinking uh, scripturally about idolatry, we might think of it as worshiping a creature or a, a, an inanimate object like a golden calf or a statue of Baal or something like that. And the Bible has plenty of examples of people who practiced that kind of idolatry. We might call that coarse idolatry. And I imagine most people today, most people in our um, modern Western culture would look at that and say, that's dumb. Like, you're, you're bowing down to a piece of wood or something like that. Like, okay, that, that's silly. That's, that's foolish, irrational even. Even if you're an unbeliever, we might say that that's obviously foolish, but what we see in the gospel lesson, and what we was actually far more prevalent in our culture today, is more of a refined idolatry. You're not bowing down to a statue or a stick of wood or something like that. Instead, you're worshiping money or popularity or power or fame or security. Untangibles, intangibles. For instance, when we see our, our job or our family even, or our recreation as more valuable than God, then that's refined idolatry because he's no longer the first, most, he's not longer the, the thing that we uh, fear, love, and trust above all things. Or when we forsake prayer and worship to pursue some other activity, no matter how worthwhile it might be, that's again refined idolatry. Why? As we are not choosing Jesus first. So we might not be bringing bulls out for sacrifice, but we're still making the same deadly mistake. And at the end, at the end of the day, we're using all of these things, right, power or money or fame or whatever, all to serve our one true idol, ourselves. Like the rich fool, we tend to focus on my possessions, my well-being, my desires, my life. The mind mentality is singularly focused on our benefit no matter the cost to someone else. Who cares, we say, as long as I get what I want, as long as it makes me happy. It's my life, after all, and no one can tell me what to do with it. And it's that mentality, that Pursuit, that making the goal, instead of making the goal God's glory, making the goal our glory or our happiness, that has led to so much destruction in our world and in our lives. It's that mentality that has led to the deaths of millions of unborn babies. It's that mentality that has led to the destruction of countless marriages. It's that mentality that has led to soaring numbers in homelessness, in abuse, and in addiction. All of the corruption we see around us, all of the brokenness we feel within us is a result of the idolatry of self. Because we have refused to submit ourselves to the one true God. And sinfully, we've rejected the truth that our lives, that our bodies, that our possessions and our wealth are all gifts from God to be used for his glory. None of it is mine. All of it is his. And he has every right to tell us what to do with it. And yet, it's our sinful nature to rebel against this word and command. It's in our nature to try to remove God from his throne and to set ourselves up in his place. The mine mentality is nothing other than our deeply ingrained desire to sin, to lay up treasure for ourselves And to not be rich toward God. And yet, it's despite this, in the midst of this, that God in his love has been rich toward us. Or uh, Romans 5 tells us that even while we were sinners, God demonstrates his love for us in this. That he died for the ungodly. He died for us. He has been rich toward us. He's always been rich toward his wayward people. Again, after Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden, what does the Lord do? Well, he makes a promise to them to deliver them from the sin that they had brought forth to the world. Or after Cain killed Abel, God came to him both with with punishment and with provision, right? The mark so that he would not die. And then though the Pharisees and the Sadducees were hard-hearted, Christ still went to the cross to forgive their sins. And he does the very same thing for us. Though we are prone to selfishness and idolatry, God sent his son to be our teacher, to be our savior, to be our advocate. As teacher, Jesus demonstrated what it actually looks like, what a holy and righteous life actually looks like in the eyes of God. And it didn't look like success. Christ's life was was one of poverty and simplicity. His ministry was met with constant resistance and fleeing followers. His glory was being lifted up on a criminal's cross with the scorn of the people echoing in his ears. Instead, Jesus teaches us that what is good in God's eyes is selfless love for another. An adherence to the commands of God. Or as he says, love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Instead of the mind mentality, that's exactly what he does. He first considers how it pleases his heavenly father. And he considers what would most benefit his creation. The laying down of his life for sinners like us. And of course, we know that Christ is more than just a teacher. He's our savior. He's your savior. He doesn't just give an example of holiness. But he makes you holy through his blood. Our scripture tells us Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Because he died the death you deserved. God looks upon you and he sees the righteousness of his son. His death has covered over your life, paying for your iniquities. His life now covers over your death. So that you would be called a child of God and you would have become an heir of eternal life. So Jesus is our teacher and he is our savior and he is our advocate. Christ suffered the cross and he overcame the grave and now he sits at the right hand of the father speaking on our behalf. It's kind of ironic that in our text today it starts off with this man uh, asking Jesus to be an arbiter, right, a judge or a mediator between him and his brother. And that's exactly what Jesus is. He is a mediator, right? Not between family members squabbling over something as petty as money inheritance. But Jesus is the mediator between God and man so that we could receive a much greater inheritance, an everlasting inheritance, life in his kingdom. And now today and every day, There's Jesus sitting at the right hand of the the Father, pleading our case before him, saying, Father, don't look at their deeds. Look at my righteous ones done on their behalf. Father, don't look at their hearts. Look at my heart that was poured out for them. Jesus has given us his riches, his grace. He's lived that perfect life for us. Our Scripture says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is this, that, he, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And you are. You are rich beyond all measure because you have been given every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. His grace is yours. His mercy is yours. His eternal life is now yours. When we look at this text, Jesus Jesus is asking us to see ourselves as the man, as the farmer, right? The one who was blessed with so much blessing that he didn't know what to do with it all. And he asks us, are we going to be the rich fool? Or are we going to be the rich steward. So the challenge for us in this is that we would use the blessings, spiritual and material, the blessings we've been given through Jesus Christ for his glory and in service to his people. So what's one of those blessings we've been given? How about his unending love and his bottomless grace? We've been given that in abundance, overflowing, lavishly. But may we not only see this as something that we receive, but may it also be something that we give. Or as Christ says, freely have you received, freely give. So when others sin against us, or when they fail to consider our needs, when they hurt us, let us give the forgiveness that we've already been given. Let us love because Christ first loved us. Let us forgive because Christ has first forgiven us. Or we've been given hope. We've been given hope of everlasting life in God's kingdom. And again, this is not something for us to hoard. It's something for us to share. There are many whose hope has been placed in temporary things, whose eyes have been blinded by the mind mentality, who live only with themselves and mind. And there's a great opportunity for us to point them to a hope that will last and will never fail. And that hope is the message that Christ died for us and he died for them and their sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. And that's a message. That gospel is a message that cannot just stay in this building. And so let's go and share this gospel with our families and our friends and everyone who will listen. And of course, not only have we received spiritual blessings, but God has also given us temporal blessings of possessions and wealth and skill. So let's not be like the rich fool who only saw how he could benefit. But instead, may the Lord open our eyes to see how we can use these gifts for the betterment of God's people and for the spreading of his message. Now, at the end of the text for today... Jesus instructs us to be rich toward God. And it's exactly what we've been talking about. Sharing his grace by forgiving sins. Sharing his hope by proclaiming the gospel. Sharing his gifts with the world around us. All to the glory of his name. After all, it's all his. And he can tell us what to do with it. Let's pray. Lord God, Like the man in the text, we ask you to be our arbiter, our mediator, not so that we can receive an earthly inheritance, but that we would be counted righteous in the eyes of God for your sake. Forgive us, Lord, for the mind mentality that we so quickly adopt. May the Holy Spirit put to death our selfish tendencies and give us new hearts that seek to worship you and you alone as the one true God, in Jesus' name, amen.